All right, you guys, good morning. Good to see you guys. So good to, uh, to have you. Uh, as Susie said, I love the fall, and it finally sort of feels a little bit like fall today, although kind of humid. It's maybe like fall in the tropics out there a little bit this morning. But um, hey, before we get too much further, uh, so kids, elementary kids, so I guess like preschool through fifth grade, you guys are dismissed and you're headed out that door with maybe Pastor Chris is going to take you or Teacher Heather. Somebody's going to take you, elementary kids. Um, and then youth group, middle school, high school, you guys are out of here as well. I think Don Jay is taking you today, which is great. That means I've got a little extra time up here this morning. <laughs> Give them Jesus, Don Jay. Lord knows those kids need it. So I know they need it because four of them are mine, and I know they, they Lord, Lord, they need it. So um, again, just to amplify a little bit what Susie said, awfully excited in this fall season just to be starting off with a whole new session of uh, life groups and regroup and small groups and any way we can do it, we're going to group up, right? So uh, regroup, these are weekly meetings. Regroup happens right here back in the fellowship hall as Pastor Jeff teaches through the book of Ephesians and there's a discussion component there just to talk back and forth about the text. And then uh, the life groups, as Susie mentioned, um, this has been hosted at the Nelsons but it's gonna be at the church office, which is just down on Old Middlefield Way, not far from here. But it's a discussion group each week based on the sermon from here on Sunday morning. So just a chance to get together and talk through all the things that I have to rush through and just kind of go deeper in some of those things or to talk about where I got it wrong or how it could have been better or how bored you were or how you left in the middle of the sermon or whatever it was. You can talk about that on Wednesday nights. Uh, and then the following week, we're going to start up a new series of men's and women's small groups where we're super excited. We're going to go all the way through all of the minor prophets uh, this year. So uh, starting now in September, ending up at the sort of beginning of May, we're going to go through all 12 books uh, of the Minor Prophets. And uh, if you've never read the Minor Prophets, they're outstanding. The, a lot of the verses that you've heard and you just never knew where they came from, they probably came from the Minor Prophets because there's some important stuff um, in there. So I think that's all before we jump in. We have a great text uh, this morning. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, but let's pray before we jump uh, into it this morning. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. And we uh, we thank you so much, Lord, for this, uh, just this opportunity, Lord, this place that you've provided, Lord, and this time that you have prescribed that we can come together as your body, Lord, as the body of Christ, and just minister unto you through our worship, Lord, and be ministered uh, to by you uh, through your spirit, Lord, and your word. And so we just pray that that would happen even now, Lord, as we open your word today, we pray that you'd give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to each one of us. Uh, Lord, each one of us first as individuals, Lord, but, um, but first and foremost today, Lord, as a, as a church, Lord, collectively and, and corporately. And so we pray that you'd bless this time, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Colossians 3 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles that you can borrow. And if you would like to take one home, you're welcome to do that. If you want a different Bible, we'll get you a different Bible. Any way you slice it, we want you to have a Bible. So if you need one, raise your hand. Um, if you want to use one that's on your phone, I'm teaching out of the New King James translation, if it helps to follow along in the same one. But we're uh, in Colossians chapter 3, picking up this morning in verse 15. And, you know, we started off together last time, you'll remember, into kind of a new section in Paul's little letter here to the Colossians. And it was this middle section of the book that really deals with our sanctification, right? That ongoing process that the Lord uses just to make us more and more like Jesus, right? Transformed more and more into his image as we grow and we mature in our faith. And we see Paul really starting to kind of drill down on this issue because remember that it was here that the heresy of the false teachers that had come into Colossae, it was here that that heresy really kind of hit 
home. Remember, they were claiming that you needed to add in or you needed to add on to your faith alone in Jesus alone. You had to add all these other things in order to really then grow and, and to go deeper in the things of the Lord. You had to add in these human philosophies. You had to add in this religious legalism. And so we remember in chapters one and two, Paul spent these first two glorious chapters, first of all, demonstrating the supremacy of Jesus in chapter one, and then next, the sufficiency of Jesus in chapter two, both as it relates to our salvation and our sanctification. Right, that just as it was Jesus alone who saved us, that it will be Jesus alone who then sanctifies us. Right, we talked last week that old man, right, that old nature in which we once walked, right, before we came to know him. Paul says that that old nature, that old man was crucified on the cross with Jesus in a spiritual sense, and now we need to put that off in a practical sense, right? Making those choices we saw each and every day to put on the new man, right? Remember that glorious new set of these kind of heavenly clothes, this whole new heavenly wardrobe that we now have hanging there in the closet, right? That we have to go out with the old and in with the new. And we remember that Paul had exhorted us, starting back in verse 12, which is actually where we're gonna start out, again this morning because we need to get kind of a, a running start into the context of our text. So look back there, beginning in verse 12, where Paul exhorted us, this should sound familiar. He said, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, right? So as God's special people, he says, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, he says, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So all of these beautiful kinds of these Christian qualities, right? We went through them all last week. Don't panic. We're not going to go through them again this week, right? But this beautiful new wardrobe that we now have both the privilege and the power, right? Through that indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we can now put these things on each and every day. And you remember that we made notes specifically together last week of the fact that each of these godly attributes that Paul says that we're to put on and then really start to wear around as we go around in our day, that every one of these qualities that Paul mentions in this passage, that they really express themselves primarily where? In our relationships with other people. So again, it shows us that by far the most significant measure of our maturity in our Christian life is found simply in the way that we treat other people and the real quality of the depth of relationship that we have with them. With our love for them, right? That agape love being right at the top of the list. It was actually at the end of the list, right? But Paul said it's the thing that goes over all the rest of it. That the real distinction, the real mark of spiritual maturity, it's that kind of love, that agape love that we see in Jesus Christ. And it's that kind of love that we should see so beautifully within Christian relationships and in true Christian community. Because you remember when Paul talked about that love there in verse 14, look at, he says, he describes it as the bond of perfection. And we talked last week a little bit about the fact that I think he phrases it that way because it's this love that is the very glue that holds us together as Christians with one another. And so what we have happening here in this passage, again, starting up there kind of in verse 12, is not only is the Apostle Paul kind of detailing these kinds of clothes that we're to put on so that we can make a good impression out there in the world, but it's really starting to emphasize the importance of these same qualities 
as the qualities which make us distinctive as a people within the church. Right, so these are the distinctives that mark the community of God. All of these different things that we looked at in that list and that we're going to see this morning, these are the things that as the world starts to look in at us, that they would see something that's altogether different. They would see something that's not at all natural because there is something truly that is supernatural that's happening here. And the easiest way to think about it is with kind of a silly example, but imagine a town, right, where all the people in that town were just like what we read about in verses 5 through 9. Now remember in verses 5 through 9, we read about the old nature, those things that Paul said we are to put off. And all of these people then are people who are overtaken in gross sexual immorality and they are filled with evil desires and they're covetous and they're angry and they're wrathful and they're raging and they're looking constantly to harm other people, right? They're slanderers, right? Everything that comes out of their mouth was only disgusting and filthy and obscene and bottom line, they're just all liars. So that's this town. But then just a few mere miles up the road, there's this other little town. And the people who live in that town are much different. Those people that live in that town are compassionate and they're kind and they're humble and they're gentle and they're patient and they're forgiving and they're loving one another and they're doing it with a love that is pure and a love that's unique. So here's the question. Which town would you like to buy a house in? Right? So these are the questions that the pictures on Zillow don't answer, right? But given the, and of course the, the point of the picture is that the church is this town up the road, right? That's what the church is designed to be in the world. You see, the church is God's alternative to man's world. And man's world, of course, we know is filled full with all of those ugly things that we saw in verses 5 through 9, right? We, we mentioned initially, right, that first town, that's what man's world looks like. But God's world, right, God's kingdom, God's community is a community where kindness and compassion and where mercy and humility and gentleness and all of those other things that we are to be putting on as God's people those beautiful things are the atmosphere in God's community. And they are a beacon of light and a beacon of hope in the midst of all of that other darkness. You remember what, what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 5, as he starts to lay out what really the kingdom of God is supposed to look like in its, its essentials. He said that you are the light of the world he said, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. And that's what the church is, right? The church with a capital C, right? The church is basically a city of God that is set up in the midst of a dark world. And the church is to be that place where we can get a taste of what life in the kingdom of Jesus Christ is like here on earth. And so now, as Paul continues in this passage, he starts to speak about what that life in that kingdom of community should look like. Continuing on now in verse 15, he's going to lay out yet another one of those beautiful kingdom qualities, right? So in addition to tender mercies and the kindness and the gentleness and the long-suffering and the forgiveness and the agape love which is holding it all together. In addition to all of that, he says in verse 15, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. So the next thing we see, right, the first thing in our text today is that the community of God should be a community of peace. And this peace, this peace of God that Paul talks about, it should really permeate the entire body. Now, the, the peace of God is something that only comes to us from God himself. 
right? Jesus spoke about it uh, when he said to his disciples, remember in the upper room as he prepared them for his crucifixion, he said this to them and to us as well. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. He said, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So what the Bible teaches us is that when we're first born again, right, and we're regenerated by the Spirit of God, which is, by the way, the greatest miracle that could ever happen to anyone ever, anytime, right? But when that happened and we experienced this spiritual birth, right, that surrendering of our lives there to God, the Bible declares that at that moment, we ended our rebellion against God. And at that moment, the scriptures teach that we have now peace with God, right? So Paul said to the Romans that since we've been justified by faith, we have peace through, uh, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, so that's done. But then the Bible goes on to teach about the peace of God, which is what Jesus and Paul here are talking about. In other words, when we became Christians, again, by the act of that, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and as the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, he introduced something new into our lives, something called the peace of God. And this is talking about an inner peace, a, a spiritual kind of a supernatural inner sense of quiet and calm and a tranquility that the Holy Spirit has now brought into our lives as Christians. It's what the Jews would have referred to as the shalom, right? And it's supernatural. And it should be, Paul says, what characterizes both our own lives and our churches that there should be this otherworldly kind of an atmosphere of peace when people come in among us. So the church is not to be a place of strife and of division and worry and fear or anxiety, right? Those are the things that certainly mark the world, but the church is to be this beautiful atmosphere of peace. It's supposed to be something that is different. Now, of course, we're talking about the church collectively, right, with the capital C. As I said, we're talking about church community here. But obviously, this same principle starts with each of us personally, right? Because the strife and the division and the worry and the anxiety, these are the things that are all developed in the hearts of individual people. And then they spill out, right? They kind of ooze out all over everything and they wreck the rest of the atmosphere. And so certainly this all starts with us. And this is why in the other sort of famous peace passage in the New Testament, in Philippians chapter four, this is what Paul urged. He said to us individually, he said, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And he says that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And so what we're going to see here in our passage today is that I think Paul's going to give us some very practical, some very interesting, and some very important insight into how we can really protect this sense of wonderful peace. Because when Paul says, look back at our text today, he says, when he says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, that word rule is a super interesting one there. It would be a word that we would literally translate as umpire. And so what does an umpire do? Well, an umpire makes the call, doesn't he or she, right? Makes the call as to whether someone is safe or someone is out or if they're offsides or out of bounds or Mike can help me with the rest of it because I don't know what an umpire does, right? But we're to let the peace of God umpire in our hearts. The, the peace of God should be this kind of an umpire in our lives and in our communities as Christians. 
So the first distinctive, if you will, that marks the community of God that we see this morning is not only should we be a peace-filled community, but really we should be a peace-governed community. Because there's this beautiful sort of internal witness of the Holy Spirit in our lives through the presence of his peace in our hearts. Right, to tell us whether something is safe or whether something needs to be called out right, in our lives or within the body. And how we should often make decisions, this is what we should use to make decisions in our lives and about our lives. And here's the key, right? This is the important part, is that the truth is that there are so many different emotions that we all experience in our lives, maybe every day, and we can be very prone to allow those things to become the umpire in our life. We can allow those things to be the things that become what we allow to really drive our decision-making, right? Things like bitterness or envy or anger or anxiety or fear or any one of those ugly carnal emotions that might arise out of our hearts, right? And then we're tempted to make some kind of a decision based on those things, right? We then allow them to, to make the call, right, in our decision-making as all these different things kind of come into play because of our emotions. And Paul says, no. He says, don't let those things rule in your hearts. Don't let those things make the decisions within your life, within your church, within your, you know, for your life. But uh, allow the peace of God to be what makes the call. Because when those other emotions, right, those other marks of the flesh, where they will take us, right, the decision that they will produce in our lives as they drive us versus the decision that the peace of God will produce, they are two entirely different destinations, right? Each decision is going to put us on a very different path moving forward, not only as individuals, but again, in our church communities collectively. And notice that Paul's making this exhortation to the whole church, isn't he? He's speaking to the entire church. He says that this peace to which you also were called in one body, right? All together as a group, you've been called to let peace have this kind of control, right? So he's telling them, and certainly he's telling us, that they are not to interact with one another. They're not to come to conclusions about one another. They're not to make decisions concerning one another, being dominated by fear or anger or jealousy or any of those other things, but to allow the peace of God, allow that to be the official, right, that's making the call, the decision maker in their hearts. And I think that this is such an important word of exhortation for us as a church, right, as, as a church with a capital C, not just as a, the lowercase c, right, but in order to really that we're able to preserve this sort of sense of otherworldly kind of peace that we're supposed to have unique to us as the people of God. And if you'll be patient with me for just a minute, I think that this umpiring aspect of the Holy Spirit in our lives, of course, it has not only this corporate whole church application, as we're going to see really in the context of this passage, but it, it is also very, very important for us to understand that it has an individual personal application as well. And this verse, Colossians 3.15, put a star next to it because it can absolutely transform a Christian life. As a matter of fact, I don't think that anyone can have the Christian, the kind of Christian life that God really desires for us to have without understanding and really walking in this truth that Paul's bringing out here and doing on a, on a real individual kind of a personal level, right? This has a very individual application to one of the most important questions that Christians ask. I would say by far, it is the question that we get asked more and we get asked more to pray for than any other, and that is, how can I know the will of God in all of these various areas of my life and, uh, and where I need to be making decisions? 
right? So how does this letting the peace of God umpire in our hearts, how does it apply to us individually? Because of course, if it doesn't happen in the individual Christians within the church, right? If we don't learn ourselves how to let the peace of God umpire in our hearts about our lives personally, then it's never going to happen in the church as a whole. Now, it should go without saying, but that never stopped me from saying it anyway. But the Bible is explicitly clear on so many of the questions in our lives. And it is always by far the first and the best place that we should go in order to know God's will for our lives. Right? We see so clearly what God's will is on so many issues. The Bible is very clear letting us know how God feels about stealing or how God feels about lying or how God feels about us being unequally yoked together with an unbeliever or how God feels about should I be having sex with my girlfriend before we get married, right? He has already answered those questions without any question. But it's when we come to those other questions in our lives Right, should I continue on in my education? Or you know, where should I work? Where should I live? Should I follow all of my friends who fled the state and moved to Texas, right? Or, or gone to Tennessee, right? Here's the problem. There is no should I leave California chapter in the Bible. If there is, we all would have found it, right? But it's in those kinds of situations where we need to be able to seek the Lord for an answer and what it is he has for us individually. And when we do that, what we find is he will, he will very often speak to us and he'll give us that answer through this peace that he provides in our hearts. Because it is one of the primary ways that the Lord speaks to us and really communicates his will to us as individuals is through the presence or through the absence of this peace. And of course, the idea is that as we come to those forks in the road, right, those decision places in our lives, God will very often give us a greater sense of peace in my life concerning the direction that he wants us to go, right? Because as Christians, we should always be walking in peace. There's this constant state of peace in our hearts provided to us by the Spirit as we're enjoying our relationship with the Lord and we're walking in the things of the Lord and we're walking in obedience with the Lord. And so when we come to these questions, if the thought of one path provides us with this sense of peace, but the possibility of another path more so gives us a sense of pause, right? Or just an uneasiness or just a, a disquiet, if you will, in our souls. It makes us cautious or it makes us apprehensive about taking that next step in a given direction. It's almost like a warning, right, that danger is near and you just kind of lose your sense of peace. And you just, you can't put your finger on it, but you just have this sense that something's wrong here just that the Holy Spirit is unsettled or that he's disturbed inside of you, right? You just say, I'm not comfortable making that decision or making that commitment or going in this direction. It's a sense that something's just not right. And can I say that it can sometimes come when everything we see looks perfectly right, but it doesn't look right to the Holy Spirit. And you may have heard a Christian say, and I think it's a perfectly good expression to use. We don't find these words in the Bible. But sometimes you may have heard a Christian say, you know what? I just have a check in my spirit about this thing. A check in my spirit. And I think it's a good way to say it because it's like the Holy Spirit is throwing up a stop sign. And he's checking us to come and check in with him about what it is we're doing very often so that he can keep us from doing it, right? It simply means that something's wrong here. Something's not right. The Holy Spirit is stopping me and I'm not supposed to move ahead on this and I'm supposed to stop in the direction I was going and go back to seeking the Lord. Okay, Lord, I had your peace up until this point, but something now has changed. 
And so I want to stop right where I am, and before I take one more step in any direction, I want to know your mind in this situation. And again, I'll add this. The Word of God is always, always the final authority. When someone tells you they have a peace about something that very clearly contradicts the Word of God, you have my blessing to lovingly look them in the eye and say, dear brother, dear sister, you may have a peace, but it's not the peace of God. Right? Jonah had a peace right, about disobeying God's word and going in the other direction. Jonah had so much of a peace that you remember he slept like a baby in the bottom of the ship in the middle of this huge storm that he caused. He had a peace until he got thrown overboard, right? And then we know that he had a whale of a time, right, getting out of that one. I mean, everything that Jonah did was so super fishy, wasn't it? Okay, I'll stop now. Just two. I promise. Jonah was drowning in disobedience. I mean, we could go on, right? Thank you. Email in your best Jonah times, right? The peace of God will never contradict the wisdom of God as it's revealed in the word of God. And we need all of these things working together in order to make those decisions and be able to move forward in exactly what it is for God, uh, God has for us as he really guides us and he leads us in that perfect plan and that will that he has for us. And it's such a crucial thing for us to realize in our lives. I can promise you, I can tell you, that every time that I have personally gone against that peace, let alone gone against God's will of something he's revealed clearly in his word, I can promise you it has always ended up being the wrong direction. And I have ended up spit up on more than one beach in fish vomit, right? So to speak, right? This is a great way that God speaks to us, and it's so important for us to learn. Again, not only as it relates to us personally, but then you can see how it would spill out corporately, right? Because again, these are truths that the average Christian needs to learn on an individual level before we ever bring them in to the, to the body of the church, right? We bring it from our individual experience and from our individual life, we bring it then into the body of Christ. So it's such an important exhortation. Well, I think, I hope you agree, worth a few extra minutes, right? We learn to let the peace of God umpire in our hearts, seeking after him, and really simply just trusting in him. Trusting in him that he wants to make himself, he wants to make his will known to us. He wants to shepherd us through that peace, right? Individually, collectively, you know, so much of our anxiety and our worry and the strife and the tension, those things that can sometimes develop amongst us as believers, it's due to the simple fact that people aren't trusting in God and it just disrupts that sense of peace. We've got to trust the Lord, right? We have to trust the Lord with our circumstances. We have to trust the Lord with all of these things that are going on around us in the world. We have to trust the Lord with all of these things that are completely out of our control and believe, though, that they're not at all out of his control. And when I can really trust that to the Lord, then I have peace, and I'm not agitated, and I'm not irritable, and I, I'm not creating strife and tension amongst others. Why? Because I'm trusting, and I'm resting in the Lord, and I'm resting in his promises, and I'm resting in his plan. And that's how we learn practically to trust, right? We set our minds, we set our hearts on his plan, and when we do that, a funny thing happens, when we do that, we're reminded that he does have a plan, right? We read the book, right? And we see that God has a plan for this entire universe, and he also has a plan for my life. 
He has a plan for the lives of my family, the people that I love, and I can focus on his ability to carry out those plans, and all of that just ushers this peace into my life. And that's one of the primary reasons why God has gone to the great lengths he has to give us his word and why it needs to be so central to our lives, which actually brings us right to the next quality that Paul says should mark our Christian communities. Look at just the first half of verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. So we should be a community, right? The community of God should be a community where the word of the Lord has a place of primacy and a place of priority. The word dwell, of course, just means to, to settle in, right? To make itself fully at home. And the word richly means abundantly. And I love that because what it says is that the word of God needs to make itself abundantly at home in our hearts and in our lives, as well as in our churches, right? That as we study it and we meditate on it and we apply the word, it then becomes a real permanent abiding part of our lives, right, as believers in him. So these distinctives that mark the community of God, we need to be a peace-governed community, and we need to be a scripture-inhabited community. And the reason I say it like that is because that very same word, dwell, it's the Greek word which is most often used by the other New Testament authors and by Paul to describe exactly what it is that the Holy Spirit does as he comes and takes up residence in our lives. The Holy Spirit dwells within us and he does it richly and he does it abundantly. And there was one Greek language expert that I was reading said something so interesting, again, based on the way that this word is used, he says, there appears to be here an allusion to the Shekinah, or the symbol of the divine presence which dwelt in the tabernacle and the first temple. Now I think, maybe I'm just Bible geeking out here a little bit, but I think that this is such an incredible picture, especially as we think about it in the context of our own lives. Because what it means is that in the very same way, right, that the visible presence of the glory of God, right, the Shekinah glory that hovered there above the Ark of the Covenant, in the same way that the God of the Old Testament dwelt among his people, that he was present there with his people through that Shekinah glory, he desires to now dwell in the hearts of his people through the Spirit of God, and he desires to dwell in the midst of his people through the Word of God. Some translations actually put it this way. They say, let the Word of Christ dwell among you. And I think that that's especially important because it really gives us the sense of what it is that Paul is talking about here, including you know, individual people individually, right? But also talking to the collective of people collectively as a community, right? To really let the word of Jesus Christ dwell among us as we dig deeply into it and then it dwells deeply in us. So much so, the idea here is that the word of Christ should be absolutely overflowing out of us as a church body, right? So as the word of Christ dwells in us, we become people that aren't just like, we're not just parroting the word of God, right? But as a people who we are being so shaped by God's word, it is so much a part of us at the foundation of who we are as individuals and as a church that when we speak, the word of God brings life and it brings blessing and it has power. Do you see the difference here? You know, there are some people who, again, they're just kind of parroting God's word, right? They're just repeating back 
the things that they've heard. They're probably smart people. They've maybe got a good memory. They've probably memorized lots of passages of scripture. And so sometimes they'll come into a given situation and they'll just rapid fire a bunch of different verses and they'll say, well, that's what the Bible says about this particular thing. And yet so often in a situation like that, what you often find missing is life. What you find missing is that living, that transforming power of the word. You see, when a, when a person who knows the word comes and they know it experientially, right? And when that word is dwelling in them rightly and richly and really living abundantly in their own lives, not just on like a hard drive in their heads, but when it's really there in our hearts and when it is what is forming us as a person and as a church, and then that word begins to be shared, my goodness, the power that it has is profound and it's significant. The Pharisees, of course, knew the Old Testament scriptures. They knew them better than anybody else and they used them, usually, to beat up on everybody else. Right? They used the scriptures to accuse people and to condemn people. And then along comes Jesus with the very same scriptures, which, by the way, he knew better than the Pharisees, amen, because he wrote them. Right? But he used the scriptures in the way that they were intended to be used. Jesus used the scriptures to bring life and to infuse and impart life and to produce transformation because the word of God dwelt in him richly. You think about his encounters with the Samaritan woman at the well or the, the woman caught in the act of adultery. And remember, to the one he promised that he would give her living water. To the other, he provided this wonderful sense of, of forgiveness and new beginning, right? But to both of them, his true heart and his true wisdom behind the word were revealed to them. And this is the outcome of the word of Christ dwelling richly in us and dwelling richly among us, right? That as the word of God is spoken and as it's proclaimed and ministered and applied among us, it finds that deep place of abiding among us, right? And it's that word that ultimately it imparts life and it promises mercy and it brings transformation and it provides that wisdom that we desperately need in order to apply it to all of our everyday situations. And that's what people need to see. When they look in from the outside and they look into the church, we want them to see that rather than a bunch of Pharisees that are beating people up with the Bible. Paul says no to that. He says again, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Then he says teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So not only is the community of God's people to be primarily a peaceful place where the word of God has this wonderfully deep footing and is springing up, right, to provide life. He says, but we're also to be a grace-filled place of praise and of worship, which, interestingly, don't miss this, Paul says, interestingly, that this is one of the ways that we can instruct one another and build one another up in the Lord through our music and through our singing. So he says we're to be a peace-governed community, a scripture-inhabited community, and a worship-instructed community. And you know, I think that's something for us just to take a moment to think about because I think sometimes it can be easy to fall into some bad habits you know, we have a singing portion of our services, and it starts at 10 o'clock. So 10 o'clock is when the, the little hand is pointing at the 10, and the big hand is pointing straight up at the 12. Now, I didn't watch who came in at what time today on purpose, because I don't want anybody to think I'm talking to you today. 
But we have this whole singing part of the service. It's part of our church tradition. You might even say it's part of our church liturgy, if you want to use that word. We have this time set aside where we sing songs. But this time isn't just a passing of the time. It's not just to make sure you got your money's worth when you drove here. It's not like the walk-in music or the opening act at a concert. It's not even like the cool trivia questions before the movie. But those songs themselves are intended to really minister to us. Those songs themselves are intended to bless us and to strengthen us and to impart God's truth to us. And you've had this example, I can think of many times in my own life where I've come into church and I'm concerned or I'm overwhelmed or I'm exhausted and then the team just starts to lead in a song and you say, thank you, Lord. Because that song and those words, it's suddenly, it's just like a waterfall just being poured out, just refreshing wave of water that comes upon us and just refreshes us and renews us. Again, as that word of God, sometimes the scriptures themselves, right, are set to music. And all of them remind us of the strength and the majesty and the goodness of God, right, the glory of God, the great things that God has done. They remind us of Jesus Christ, right, the mighty cornerstone in our lives and all of the precious promises that are all ours in him. And then those things start to do what? They start to dwell more richly in us because we're focused on them during our worship. Or maybe there's that time where we share a special song with someone that we know is going through a difficult time. We share a, a song about heaven with somebody who's just lost a family member. Maybe a, we share a song about God's unfailing faithfulness with someone who's in the midst of a trial. I think about David, right? The sweet psalmist of Israel himself, right? Who sang or wrote of his own times of deep trials so often, in Psalm 27, he said, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He says, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And so often we are reminded and we are strengthened as the word of God through these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is allowed really to start to dwell abundantly and richly in our hearts. And then as they point us into the worship of him, right? Paul talks there about singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, right? As our hearts are just filled up with this sense of thankfulness and a new awareness of God's grace. And I'll simply add this. This idea here of these different types, right, the psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs, the emphasis here is more so, I think, on the variety than necessarily strict categories of the kinds of songs that we might sing. Of course, psalms would be simply the Old Testament scriptures set to music. Hymns are typically songs that speak about the greatness of God. They speak about the power of the, the majesty or the attributes of God. Spiritual songs right, are spiritual truths very often related to our own experience as Christians, like gospel songs are spiritual songs, or what some today might call praise choruses that we sing today, again, to glorify God and encourage one another. But Paul is not trying either to start or to settle some kind of a debate about whether we should be singing hymns or praise choruses. That's not what he's doing. And yet just for you, I will be happy to settle the debate once and for all definitively for you this morning. You ready? Should we be singing hymns? Or should we be singing praise songs? Yes. The text says psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And I will say this, that our wonderful worship leaders all do a great job of very carefully crafting each and every service 
so that they have a great mix of all three of those things. And, and Paul's point, I think, simply, again, in a, in a bigger picture context, look what, here, he punctuates this in verse 17. He says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So it doesn't matter what we sing or what we do as long as we're singing it and we're doing it unto Jesus and not unto ourselves. Right? We're not doing it because it's what we want. We're doing it because it's what he wants. In other words, whatever you do, do everything in the nature and in the flavor of Jesus. So not only should we be a peaceful community where the word of God has this deep footing and where it's constantly abiding, should we be a grace-filled place of praise and worship, but we're also to be a place that's free of self-interest and that's focused instead on Jesus Christ alone, right? We're to be a Jesus-focused community. And you see, this is where the trouble comes in, isn't it? This is always where the trouble comes into our lives and into our relationships and into our churches, and it infects the community of God, and it weakens our witness to the world. It's when people start to operate out of a sense of self-interest or self-focus or self-preference or self-preservation or self-seeking or self-satisfaction or self-anything, right? You get my point. Whenever we start to do that, that's where the trouble starts. And unless that course is changed, things are only going to go from bad to worse. We're not to promote ourselves. We're not to protect ourselves. What does Jesus say? We're to deny ourselves. And we're to lift him up, right? One single name, and that's the name of Jesus in everything that we do. Remember, Paul's writing here, think about the conditions in the church of Colossae that Paul was writing to. They were no, about, no doubt suffering from all this terrible fracturing and division that always occurs, the teaching, that all, the teaching, the confusion that always occurs when false teaching is brought into a body. And so he says here, look, here's a very simple metric that you can use that you can wade through all the different voices that you're hearing. And I think that this can be especially helpful on a personal level as we consider for ourselves what kind of things are right, what kind of things are wrong for us as Christians to be involved in. And again, if you could memorize this verse, I think that it can really be the key to start to unlock so many of these questions for us. This is a great sort of a filter that we can filter everything that we say, and that's this. Number one, can I do this, can I say this, whatever, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Would this thing bring him glory? Could I expect his blessing to rest upon this thing? And would I want to be doing this when he comes back for me? Those are pretty easy but pretty probing questions, aren't they? Whatever you do in word or deed, what we say, what we do, all of it should be for his glory and not for ours. And whatever we do, we should do it just like Jesus would have done it. Right? Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant being born in the likeness of men. Jesus emptied himself, right? He gave up his own claim to glory. He gave up all of his own preferences, all of his prerogatives, so that he could serve us. And now we need to live lives that look just like he did, right? Serving others, bringing glory to Jesus as we do it. Now that sounds like a different kind of community. That sounds like a heaven on earth kind of a community. But wait, there's more, right? Because Paul says that once you're doing that, right, as you're living like Jesus did, that we should do it as we give thanks to God for the privilege of being able to do it. Right? So in light of what we once were, in light of how we once spent our lives, in light of how we'd probably still be spending our lives apart from him, 
and everything that he's done for us, how could we not live lives that are marked with this wonderful sense of thanksgiving? I'll tell you how. It's that ugly old self. Because we are not thankful by nature, old nature. And I know you noticed this because you guys are super smart folks, but this is the second time in just these three verses where Paul has exhorted us plainly to be thankful. They're kind of like these beautiful bookends to the passage. Look, it's first there it's in verse 15, then here it is again in verse 17. And why did he do that? Why did he encourage us to be thankful? Because he knew that we wouldn't be. Or that at least we would struggle to do that because of our flesh. But the church is to be a community that's marked by thankfulness. Right? Peace governed. Scripture inhabited. Worship instructed. Jesus focused. And a thankful hearted community of people. And it's such a simple thing on the one hand. But isn't it so amazing how much goodness really flows out from a heart that's thankful. You know, when a person is thankful, everything just seems, it really just sets the tone for everything in their lives. And conversely, when a person is unthankful, that can easily set the tone for everything in their life as well. Now, I think as we think about what it means to be unthankful, I wasn't even actually sure that sounded like a real word, but I looked it up and apparently unthankful is a word. But I think there's a better word to really help us wrap our minds around this thing that we don't want to be, and that word is entitled. Because I think that the real opposite of being thankful is being entitled. Because the entitled person is always slightly irritated just under the surface because they feel they're not really getting what they deserve to be getting. They're not thankful for what they've got. They're not thankful for their state or their lot or their portion in life. And there's this entitlement that kind of rears up and says, you know what, I deserve something better. And what happens is because it's there under the surface, it affects all their entire attitude, right? A little leaven leavens the whole lump and it wrecks all of those other wonderful things that we've seen in our text today. They are not peace governed and scripture inhabited and worship instructed or Jesus focused because they are always self-focused, right? That there, maybe there was this position that they thought they deserved or some sort of recognition that they didn't get or a situation that they think should be their situation, whatever it is, they are focused entirely on themselves and they think they always deserve something that's better because deep down, the entitled person is really a prideful person, right? A self-focused person because they feel like they're owed something better than they have. And I know, again, there is no one in this church who is struggling with this kind of an attitude, but for the sake of all those other people, right, in those other churches who are filled with people like that, for their sake, so what's the cure for this kind of entitlement, right, that shows itself as a lack of thankfulness? Well, the cure is recognizing the goodness and the mercy that God has already showed toward us. The cure is simply to realize, you know what, I'm actually blessed beyond what I deserve. And I know that all of those things that I think I'm entitled to, I'm just going to take those things and I'm going to entrust those things to God's grace and to his mercy, and I'm going to entrust them to his ability to provide them for me or not to provide them for me as he knows his best. So rather than being upset or annoyed or irritable because I haven't received these things or this position or I don't have this mansion that I think I should have, I can just simply say, Lord, I can't believe how good you've already been to me. It was, it was in Lamentations when Jeremiah wrote this. He said, because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And basically what he's saying is the fact that we haven't been consumed, 
right? Because our sins deserved it. But the very fact that we haven't been consumed is a testimony to the mercy of God. And those same mercies are refreshed for us each and every day. And if we walked around realizing how much more blessed and how much more favored we actually are than what we really deserve to be, we would walk around in a state of constant thankful bliss. And the church would shine much brighter in the world as a result. I mean, again, you just think for a second what your attitude is like when you're thankful. When you're thankful, your attitude is good. And all of those good virtue things that we've seen, you know, they come forth from a thankful heart. But when a person is unthankful, right, when a person is untitled, those other people, right, again, of course, but think of somebody that you can just never please, somebody that's just never satisfied, somebody that's just never thankful, somebody that just always feels like they're getting the short end of the stick or that life's not really fair or that they deserve more. And we think of that person who's like that and we say, Lord, I don't even know what to do with that kind of person. Well, the first thing to do with that person is don't be that person. Amen? Don't ever be those people because those kinds of attitudes are not becoming of the people of God. Because if there's one thing that we all should know, you don't have to read much of the Bible to understand that God's kindness and his grace and his forgiveness towards us are all things that we don't really deserve at all, and yet he continues to lavish them upon us richly every day, day after day. And so just understanding that in and of itself should put us in this place of permanent thankfulness and help us to walk in that thankfulness. And I tell you, when you have a community of thankful people, that is a place where other people want to hang out. That's the kind of place where other people want to be there because there's something so beautiful about that. And so again, let's remember, let's, the church is this peculiar place that God has designated to be this wonderful picture of heaven on earth. That's what we're here to be. I love the way Eugene Peterson put it in one of his books. He said, so why the church? He said, the short answer is because the Holy Spirit formed it to be a colony of heaven in the country of death. Church is the core element in the strategy of the Holy Spirit for providing human witness and physical presence to the Jesus-inaugurated kingdom of God in this world. It is not that kingdom complete, but it is a witness to that kingdom a colony of heaven in a country of death. And I love that picture because it is so true. And man, do we not live in a country of death, right? a world of death. All that surrounds us is death. It's dead, it's dying, and it's being scorched. Right? We're just living in this time where in the midst of this kind of a scorched earth culture, right, where everybody just wants to kind of burn everything down, right? Except that you've got these people who are warring against those who want to burn everything down, right? And that's this country of death that we're surrounded by. But the church, right, we're supposed to be this colony of heaven with a whole different culture, right? A gospel culture, a culture that's shaped by those great truths of the gospel message. The church is to be this place that's completely different where people say, you know, I don't know what it is, but when I go among those Christians, they are just different. There's this peace there, and I don't know, everybody just seems to be so thankful. And you know, they're just filled with like these, these truths, right? They just know things, and they know how to apply things, and there's so much wisdom, and the things that they speak, you know, they talk about this Bible, and the Bible is wow, I didn't know that the Bible was like they say it really is. And, you know, they're just joyful and there's nobody that's like out, you know, for themselves and in it for themselves, but they're all there in it for everyone else. That's a colony of heaven. 
right here in a land of death, right? That's gospel culture in the midst of a dying culture. And that's who we are to be. That's that city, right, that's set there on a hill that can't be hidden because of this wonderfully bright light that's just radiating out of it. This is why Jesus said right after that, what did he say in the next verse? He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Those are the good works as we live them out, right? And that they would glorify your Father in heaven. And I'm saying that as we live this out in our community of God, we live out the peace of God and the thankfulness and the truth and the joy and the desire to really honor and exalt Jesus, it could change everything. And that's what the world needs right now. It needs everything to be changed, right? The world needs to see an alternative. They need to see a beautiful example and an alternative to what it is experiencing now. We are living, of course, in critical times, right? These are very strategic times, and the church needs to get our eyes off of all of these other different things that are distracting us, and remember that this is a time for the church simply to be the church, just to be this different thing. So that people in the world, whatever side they think that they're on, but they're so completely burned out and they're overwhelmed and they're wondering, is there really an alternative? And they could say, yes, there is. And I see it right over there. I see an alternative in this community of people, right? These distinctives being lived out that really mark what the people of God in the community of God should look like. Amen. So, Father, we thank you for this morning, Lord, and we thank you for your word, Lord, as we do each and every time we open it, Lord. We thank you for the, the way, Lord, that it encourages us, Lord, but it also exhorts us, Lord, to, um, to trust you more, Lord, to rest in you more, to rely upon you more, Lord, that you can live your life through us, Lord, here in community. Lord, we thank you for the beautiful picture that Paul paints of what life should look like. And Lord, we do pray that our church locally, Lord, and that the church collectively, Lord, that we would be just that slice of heaven, Lord, here on earth. And that uh, if and as people do come in amongst us, that they truly would sense, Lord, not that things are perfect, but simply that things are different. That they would sense your presence here and they would sense your peace here and there would be a sense of joy and of a people who are walking in just a grace-filled thanksgiving, Lord, for all that you've done for us and continue to do. So we thank you, Lord, and we praise you, and we do it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand up and let's uh, instruct one another through the worship of the Lord. Amen. Amen.